Hello, hello. We are offering, for this episode, we're offering a trigger warning. This episode discusses mental health with an extensive discussion of suicidal ideation and mental illness. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please know that you are valued and important. Uh, we will include resources in the episode notes. I encourage everyone to take a look at them. Beautiful. Okay, hello, hello. We are your primetime bitches, your silly trope slayers, the first girls to go. Hey, we are a horror podcast hosted by a Black woman and a Latina bringing social justice analysis into one of the most twisted genres of film, horror. I am Crystal representing Black Girl Magic. And I'm Sam, your Latina, specifically Central American, specifically Salvadorian and Costa Rican. We love specificity. And today we're going to be talking about the 2021 Candyman, directed by Nia Da Costa. I don't know if I pronounced yes. that right, but. Well, I loved your pronunciation, even if it wasn't right. So let's just stand with it. Woo! We love a Black woman director. Oh. Yes. And yeah, this movie, I enjoyed it. I mean, I had some thoughts about the end, but it's fine. <laughs> you know, we had some strong thoughts about the ending and one character in particular but like the movie on a whole is like beautiful and like well done and I think it tells an interesting story so go will, see it if you have it I will say I definitely needed more Tony Todd but I think that's a pretty <laughs> Sam's love of Tony Todd yes <laughs> love the love of Tony Todd is um is very real but anyhow uh I don't know Let, let's get started so let's jump in you know in this film we see an artist there's a lot of talk about art and the art world, you know, specifically the fine arts. So a lot of paintings, etc. Our main character is an artist. He's a painter and his, his girlfriend, she's, I guess, kind of like a curator. That's kind of what I understood yeah. it as a curator, mm-hmm. you know, art show person. And I, I think we saw sort of two tropes play out in terms of artistic characters. So the first trope I want to talk about is the eccentric artist. And in the eccentric artist trope, the the artist is seen as relatively harmless, but very annoying. And the only person they ever really seem to be a danger to is themselves, whether that's in a literal sense or more in a career destructive sense. You know, their career Mm -hmm. just goes up in flames because the vision, you need to respect my vision kind of thing. (laughs) But they tend to be very obnoxious. They don't take criticism well. They have a sort of a big ego. They think they know everything. They also really rely on the vision of their creative genius, even when no one else really sees their creative genius. Slash, (laughs) does their creative genius actually exist? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think this concept connects really well to how we see Anthony, our main character in this film. Um, We see him like this in the beginning. He's, he thinks he's doing something with his art, his Candyman (laughs) art. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's cold out here in these streets. <laughs> okay, listen. I know to our listeners who have seen this movie, I know you guys didn't think that exhibit was good. Please, Crystal, are you really good? It wasn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm not going to look you in the eye and pretend it was. I just wasn't ready for your truth. You said he thinks he's doing he thought <laughs> he thought okay he really thought his concept was clever he really thought he was representing candy manuel he's like look i made a mirror and 
beyond that mirror, it's all my paintings that this other artist literally tells him that he thought he pulled it out of the trash. He thought he and honestly out of the trash. You're not judging the other artist. Like also that artist, they try to pitch him as like a like romantic rival or like hitting on his girl. That man is just minding his business, chilling, trying to make it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyhow, Anthony really thinks he's doing something with his art. No one else really likes it. The critics don't like it. The other curators don't like it. The other artists don't like it. Even his girlfriend his, also does. Yeah, even his girlfriend, you know, she doesn't like it. And he doesn't take the criticism too well. So, you know, he's kind of, there's that scene where he's really trying to explain to the art critic what his vision is. So it's very much the the eccentric artist trope. He's kind of in that mindset of, you know, I'm, you know, you got, it's just ahead of the time type of vibe. And But if you have to explain it, it really isn't, is it good if you have to explain it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So... I, I think you see that throughout the first maybe half of the film, but then mm. I think we, he has a switch and he becomes more of the mad artist. And mm. that's another trope. So the mad artist, basically, the reason I want to talk about this is because we see Anthony transition from a more eccentric artist to just kind of full-blown mad artist. And mm. we see this happen about halfway through the movie when people are killed in front of his art exhibit and it's in the media, it's on the news the next day, and he's excited because they mention him and his work. Not the fact that his people- Twisted. And, and these aren't, <laughs> and okay, it's twisted no matter what, even if they are strangers, but these are colleagues. You know, he's I would- have like known them for a while. Like, Yeah, I wouldn't say they're his friends, but these are at least acquaintances, and I just find also, it very strange. The guy says, I want the person who's- first show who I picked up out of art school and did his first show like he's known this man for a minute <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it's very strange to me he's not you know he's not invested and you know he when he sees it in the media he's excited he feels he's getting the recognition that he deserves for his his piece he's even excited to do an interview with the racist white woman critic which she had really mistreated him earlier and that's a whole other thing i'll get into her later <laughs> but he really can't see how prob problematic that is and he doesn't seem to care that people literally died in front of his art piece um brianna his girlfriend is also suffering and she's feeling triggered at this time because she's thinking about how her dad died and she also discovered the bodies and they were all cut up i mean Finding a dead body in any context is traumatic. Finding murdered bodies is like finding finding a dead of body of your like friends and peers, like friends and peers. I mean, definitely, most definitely. And he doesn't really care because his work is getting some attention. He does not care about her. And this definitely falls into the mad artist trope. So mad artists don't really see death as important. They sort of see death as collateral damage, a means to an end. It's all for the greater good of their work getting recognized. And that's definitely the mindset Anthony adopts at that point in the film. It's also important to note that a lot of mad artist character tropes come out of feeling like the community does not appreciate their work. So there's this kind of like inner built resentment going on. And, you know, Anthony eventually loses himself completely. And while it's not necessarily because of his art, his art has a lot to do with his journey into the, the Candyman craziness. 
well his art is the cause of his like what ultimately leads to his like insanity this is uh, true because he would not have been in Kabini Kabini Green if it hadn't been for his art if you think about it not even if you th- that's just facts like <laughs> Because also his art sucked from the get-go. So then the art critic is like, I need you to bring me something like interesting. So then he's like, oh, I'll do Cabrini Green. Literally, um, like like literally I, yeah, he would not have been in Cabrini Green. Blah, wow, okay. Cabrini Green. He would not have been in Cabrini Green if it hadn't been, um, you know, again, I just, this man. I think, <laughs> this man, um, I think the Mads, artist trope is interesting because it seems like a bit of a spin on like the mad scientist trope yeah which which I think is interesting because you see like conversations of changing stem to steam and including the arts and stem and like I kind of think like the arts and stem were often two sides of the same coin especially like sculpting and engineering like there's a lot of overlap with Mm -hmm. those two things Mm -hmm. so I think it's interesting that like media like depicts that like too hmm as like we've discussed Anthony, this um, artist or so he claims, uh, and <laughs> just kind of looking at how this movie engages with like black artistry. Cause I think there's, it brings up a lot of interesting conversations and we're about to get into it after I make sure my laptop doesn't die. <laughs> nice. So nice. Um, yes. And so the movie starts with like a young man who we later learn is Billy from the original. Uh, 1992 film and he's playing with shadow puppets in his bedroom as like a preteen and I think this kind of hints at his role later in the movie as a puppet master for Anthony ultimately becoming Candyman um also uh the shadow puppetry in this movie is done by a Chicago-based company we love with respect to Chicago called Manual Cinema so if you're interested in seeing more from them you can go check them out oh my gosh that's really cool yeah you know I was like because I was really going in on like the shadow puppetry and I because I wanted to like dig further into the history and I was like there's gonna be like a historical connection between black history and like shadow puppetry but there wasn't (laughs) or at least I couldn't (laughs) find it (laughs) I think it was just a really like beautiful cool means of telling like backstory and like exposition and like a new and creative way that uh Tacosta chose to use because I also watched her in an interview talking about it um nice yes no so uh I think so the shadow puppetry kind of ties into like Billy's character, Billy slash William. We go back and forth, but ultimately painting is our central form of artistic expression here with both the original and the latest Candyman uh, being painters as well as Bree's, uh, Brianna's father being a painter. Uh, and I think we should take note that Brie is set apart from painting, but she's always in proximity to it through the men in her life. And like she dedicates her life to like taking care of art and paintings, which I think is interesting because I often think a lot of characters in the story are put in the role of like caretaker, uh, like Brianna with art um, and William with the legend of Candyman, uh, like through his actions, he kind of becomes the caretaker of like that story, which is also a form of art so wanted to call that out uh, but going back to our friend Anthony who we clearly <laughs> love so dearly <laughs> I noticed that most of the people calling out like systemic oppression and uh, inequality were white people 
namely uh, the sister's boyfriend and the critic. And so when we first meet our like lead and our leading couple, Anthony and Bree, they're getting called out for being gentrifiers by uh, Bree's uh, brother's new boyfriend. <laughs> and I laughed so hard because I was just like, you know what? Facts. <laughs> well, and I think I think that scene is also done really well because he doesn't come off being that like annoying white person calling out POC. It's mm. very innocent because they're talking about gentrification and, you know, you know, Anthony and Brie are really going into talking about gentrification and all this stuff and why it's bad. And then they're talking about all these housing complexes being built. And then he really just looks at them and says like this one. <laughs> and there's a nice uncomfy pause, but like to Sam's point, it doesn't come off as him being like a gotcha. He's just like, isn't this kind of strange that y'all are on this rant and you live here? And I think it just goes, uh, and the film goes on to prove that they're like gentrifiers and just that, and if not worse, they're, okay, this is a harsh critique. Keep in mind, I love Brie, but like they're parasites, <laughs> like they profit and benefit <laughs> off of the hardships of the residents of Cabrini Green. Uh, oh like, are you going to tell me that I'm wrong though? <laughs> I mean, I guess, so I guess I need, <laughs> I guess I need a little bit more explanation. So do you mean because they're trying to like take the trauma of the, of like Cabrini Green as a community and kind of use it for profit? Is that? Well, is that... I think both Brie and Anthony in terms of like their professional lives of artists aren't very like caring about their community or like oh caring, okay or caring about other people and I think <laughs> it becomes parasitic when you just want to take and benefit but you don't want to give and pour into this is mainly Anthony but Brie's not innocent I'm going to talk about <laughs> my slight critique of Brie later um but uh like they keep benefiting off of like all the hardship and like suffering the residents of Cabrini Green went through and it's a community that they're not a part of like uh you don't know these like people and what they've been through but you're just gonna like benefit um yeah and like later in the film we find out that anthony is from cabrini green as he's the baby in the first movie but he does not know that (laughs) does not count (laughs) i mean also also i'm of the firm belief because i think she says i think his mom tells him they move when he was two or whatever Mm. and i'm a firm believer and if you can't remember you're not a part of that community i'm sorry like it it just I think that's a fair boundary. Like, that's a solid line. Uh, you know, it's one thing to make art about a community you're not a part of, though. You can do that and still be respectful uh, of that community and make something beautiful. But Anthony does not do that. Because um, ultimately, the main, like, the centerpiece of his exhibit is a scene of a Black man being, like, brutally beaten by police. And it's very graphic and strips the victim of his humanity, uh, particularly Anthony's excitement about the piece. He looks up pictures of the man whose name we learn is Sherman. We He looks up pictures of Sherman's dead body. He excitedly tells his girlfriend like his elevator pitch about it. And he seems so happy about the piece. Like emotional intelligence is not in the room here. Uh, and it's, it's, and I agree with you too, because it's also just very exploitive, exploitative mm-hmm. or whatever, because he's, 
I don't know. I just like kind of are we giving any of the like if we make money off this, are we giving any of that money to his family? Yeah. Are we gonna pour it into the community? No, because the community's gone. Like, um, and so the critic rightfully rips him to shreds, but she's also a racist douche, so we can't like her. Um, like, mm, she has this line, your kind are the ones who benefit the most from gentrification. Uh, and she claims that she meant artists, but positionality here, friends, like saying your kind to a black man as a white woman is very intentional. <laughs> it's very microaggressive. And I actually think that's a smart move because I do think that's how like artists and like, you're like hipster artist liberals do perpetuate their racism. It's much more subtle. Um, but yeah, but to her, she does have a point because there's a lot of research in urban studies and geography that backs her up. Uh, artists tend to serve as aesthetic experts in these uh, communities. Uh, this is a point Anthony actually discusses when defending himself from the critic. The artists move into low income neighborhoods to create art, take from the culture, ultimately in service of mega corporations who gentrify said neighborhood. Anthony defends himself by pointing out that most of the artists selected to do this are white, but he's also in the system and complicit within the system. Uh, But academic research describes uh, these neighborhoods as like low economic capital, but high in cultural capital. And the dynamic between the cultural and economic is what lures artists into these uh, neighborhoods. and after that, artists kind of serve as agents of gentrification, or as uh, David Lay, a researcher, puts it, uh, they're the colonizing arm uh, that opens what was a low-income neighborhood to the middle class. Uh, because, like in society, art artists are often at this axis of high cultural value below economic value. Because until you make it, you're broke, um, regardless <laughs> of your medium of art. That's like, true. That's very true. Um. With some exceptions, if mommy and daddy are paying for everything, <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying, uh, but there's a lot of struggling artists who like aren't paying rent because mommy and daddy are handling it, uh, because but because of their position of high cultural and low economic value, they often have to appeal to wealthy people in order to survive. Uh, ultimately, the research is really torn on whether artists are victims or active participants in gentrification. Why not? However, in this. Why not both? Uh, That's the answer is probably yes. Like, are they victims or active participants? The answer is probably yes. Um, In this uh, film, I would argue that the artists are like very much so participants, uh, as demonstrated by like Anthony and uh, Brianna moving into this gentrified neighborhood, uh, because the movie does establish that they just moved into this apartment. and also with the museum director, like wanting to hire Brie because of her personal connections to artists associated with tragedy. Um, the scene is disturbing because the director comes off as cold, but also trying to play into this like community aspect of like a maternal figure, I feel. Um, and so art in this movie, complicated. The way it entangles with the race is very complicated too. But I'm going to talk about more about Brie and the museum director later. So... And, you know, I think I think it's interesting because I I feel like most of the relationships we see in this movie are very like just full of exploitation. You know, mm. there's just a lot of 
everybody just seems so fake. Like because they're even so they're they're all really fake and they're all kind of just looking at, oh, what can I get? What can I get? And I don't think Brie and Anthony are the exception. I think their relationship is definitely toxic. Uh, you know, at first in that first scene, you know, they seem really happy. They seem super settled and content in their apartment. And overall, they kind of seem like a very healthy couple. But you're then, like, yes, this black love. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. But then even in that first, even in that first segment, when they get into bed, she has that quote where she says my house on accident. And then he's kind of like your house. And she says our house. Right. And so you already note that tension between the two of them about the house. Mm -hmm. And then you later figure out that, you know, she, she owns, she owns the apartment, but you know, again, at first they seem really happy. They seem super settled and content in their apartment. They overall seem like a very healthy couple couple but that perspective is quickly shattered and you know again she's the one that paid for the apartment which right off the bat it's not necessarily a bad thing right I I definitely want to leave that clear plenty of couples have a similar dynamic or one partner sometimes makes more money than the other but this man's not making any money Mm. (laughs) which which I think is a big is a big problem um also the fact that he's bothered by the fact that she says my apartment mm -hmm. instead of like our apartment like if it's not a big deal, you wouldn't have picked up on that and felt the need to point it out. Like Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Bree's brother and other friends don't really seem happy with this arrangement, which isn't a good sign. I'm a firm believer in if your friends don't like your partner, probably a red flag. Um, we also find out that Anthony has not had a show in a while for his art. <laughs> because it sucks. Because his art's not that good. And the show he's presenting, um, you know, his disaster piece at is actually a show replanned and curated. And this is another huge red flag that I wanted to talk about because, again, while it's true that many couples do mix their business and their personal lives together, it's generally thought of as a bad idea. And the movie really illustrates this point. Their friends, their acquaintances, whatever you want to call them, pretty much everybody around them insinuates or outright states that, you know, Bree's making a mistake trying to help Anthony and that he's sort of dragging her down, dragging her reputation down. Um, Again, he constantly is kind of like making a fool of himself when he's trying to talk to the art critic about the piece. That's very based on the insinuation of the movie. It seems like that's a big no, no. And you know, a few of the people, a few of the acquaintances, they even suggest that her career will go down the drain if she doesn't drop him. So aside from those obvious distinctions in terms of economics and the unevenness of their career, the other issue we see in this relationship is Anthony gives no emotional support to Brie. None. She's definitely the giver in this relationship more than anything, both in the material sense and the emotional or spiritual sense. Anthony, on the other hand, does not give her much attention. One key example I want to bring up, which we had kind of already touched on, is she's the one that finds the bodies of her friends or coworkers after the show. And he's so caught up in his work getting attention that he doesn't check on her. He leaves her alone repeatedly. And this entire time she's being triggered from the past with her dad and he doesn't check in on her. He doesn't check in on her. And I get that some people might say, okay, well, you know, maybe he doesn't know to check in because maybe he doesn't know about her dad. 
But I think if she hasn't told him, that's kind of a red flag because that's a really big thing to hide from a partner. And okay, if she feels she can't share that with him, it could be an issue. And granted, she might not feel the need to share with him. That could be fine. But he's also not showing at all throughout this movie that he cares. Like it's not one instance, it's several instances. And the fact of the matter is if your partner finds a couple of their friends literally gutted and chopped up, I think you would bother to check in. And you know, and she does try to talk to him about it. Like when she, like when they both had a nightmare that like one day and like, I feel like she's on the brink of opening up and then he literally just slams the door in her face. Yeah, he's over here like, I'm gonna go paint. You know, gonna or go wander around and not tell you where I'm going. We don't see what he's doing in the bathroom either. He just slams the door on her and then we cut to the next day. Also, he really doesn't share what he's up to. And I just, that bothered me too. Like if you can't, I'm not saying he had to tell her every inch of where he's going, but she really just has no idea what's going on the whole movie because he doesn't tell her. And he's like constantly ditching her, like. Oh, yeah, he's constantly ditching her. And I think that's another example of him not being supported, right? He nearly skips out on that on an important dinner for her for her career. And he also isn't really nice at this dinner, even though at the time, it seems like it could, it could cost her her job, it could cost Brie her job. Mm -hmm. And he's not, he's not being really great. And you know, I, I could go on and on about this, but in conclusion, their relationship isn't really on stable ground, which I think also makes sense because it plays well into the movie in that Anthony keeps a lot of what is going on away from her. And that's definitely a trust slash communication issue in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, Anthony just treats, and like, it's not just Brie, it's also like most of the women in his life are treated like... Like his mom. Trash. He just ignores his mom. But you know what? (laughs) Okay, that's a red flag too. I'm sorry. Uh But if he's not nice to his mom and she seems like a nice person, that's a huge red flag. I get that toxic parents are a thing and some people avoid their parents because they're not great. But to me, it's a huge red flag the way he treats his mom. And then we meet the mom and she seems chill. So I. Nice. Yeah. She's like, oh, you're finally getting to visit me. Like, hi. She seems like she. She's like, what are you doing here? But it's not like a, but she promptly drops everything. And it's like there for him. Uh, yeah, a poor terrible. woman. Terrible. Thank you so much. Um, but we're actually going to talk more about Anthony and his mom in a second. And so I'm just going to start the, up this next section about like mirrors. Uh, as mirrors are obviously incredibly important in this film. And to the legend of Candyman in this franchise as a whole. Uh, the reason this story kicks off is again in reference to Anthony being a crappy boyfriend because Anthony summons Candyman against his girlfriend's will. <laughs> um, and like subsequently because of that, because he's uh, again, you have to look in the mirror, but any reflection will do because he's looking in like a window reflection when he summons Candyman. And so after that, Candyman mainly appears via reflections the entire movie, which I was admittedly pretty bad at catching, but Sam was much better at noticing. So I got to like, so Sam would let me know. (laughs) Yeah, I kept playing this game of where's Candyman the whole movie. It was great. It was awesome. And then like, I went to see it again because I was like, look, I need more notes for this one section, actually for this section. And like, there's a woman behind me who kept gasping every time Candyman showed up in the reflection. And Heike, I appreciated her because she was really letting people know. 
<laughs> if you couldn't see it on your own, her gasp would let you know to look. She's she's playing the same game I was. She's playing the yes. same game. Uh, but and mirrors and horror are pretty common uh, as a tool to frighten the audience. But it was so good here because like there's no audio cues for most of the movie. You either see it or you don't. But it's super creepy when you do see it. Um, and like mirrors and reflected images are like typical and typically used in like ghostly films as well. Think of like Oculus with like the haunted mirror. Also the curse of La Llorona, a mirror plays an important part towards the end. Also, that is a film we covered in a previous episode that you should check out. Uh, and this film, I think our central, our, we have three central characters who have mirrored opposites that reflects and ultimately amplifies their worst traits uh the most obvious comparison is daniel roboto the that's probably not his correct last name but just roll with me all uh the original Candyman and anthony's Candyman, uh both of whom are painters whose work ultimately leads to their ruin uh roboto via falling in love with his uh subject and getting lynched for his troubles uh, and anthony summoning forth a force who'd been after him his whole life unknown to him uh, but I think both of their fatal flaws are selfishness. In life, Anthony is an artist who exploits the murder, the brutal murders of Black men for his artistic achievement with not even a single care to properly telling these people's stories or even imagining what seeing that art would be like for those people's families. Uh, he just paints their beaten and broken bodies again with joy. It's not just the subject, but also how you treat it. Uh, meanwhile, Candyman's death uh, meanwhile, Candyman's selfishness is seen more so in his death. Uh, he torments the people of Cabrini Green and drives Helen insane because he, he wants to. Um, uh, and Anthony becoming Candyman because of his becomes Candyman because of his selfishness. He doesn't listen to his girlfriend when she tells him not to summon him. He neglects his mother, doesn't even invite her to his art show where she would have warned him. <laughs> not to mess with any of this so again communication could have oh avoided all of this. my gosh whoa wait she's not at the show she's not at the show he's ignoring her calls mom didn't get invited to the show because <laughs> you Man. know she would have been there <laughs> she would have been there and she would have quickly whipped him into shape and been like what are we doing what are we doing? Can you imagine that? Like your mom who's like always calling. We don't see her do anything wrong. There's no like beef. Bree's like, you need to call your mom because she thinks I'm the reason you won't talk to her. Like we don't have any reason to suspect that there's a conflict between the two of them. He just treats her like garbage. <laughs> like, what a terrible son. I'm sorry. I would be devastated if I had a child and they didn't invite me to their art show. Wow. I, sorry. I just, Wow. I, that didn't hit me till just now. And I, you know what? I know people are going to be like, well, it's, it's because that can't be revealed early on, blah, blah, blah. But no, 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 that's a red flag. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I look, he took it back to the relationship. Because to be fair, how your partner treats their like, I'm not going to say parents, how you treat your mom is very indicative of who you are. <laughs> yep. Yep, absolutely. Especially when your mom is like nice and sweet and we don't have any evidence to the contrary. If your mom is nice and sweet, there's no evidence to suggest otherwise and you treat her like trash, run, run from that person. That person is not, not your person. 
Anyhow, that person is not your person. Yes, but Anthony becomes Candyman because of the selfishness, because he treats both the woman in his life like trash and doesn't listen to them. Uh, and so, furthermore, I would say both of them are tools of white supremacy, or at least products of a white supremacist society. Roboto comes back and kills Black people after he got lynched by white slave owners, because what type of sense does that make? I'm still mad. I'm still mad. <laughs> um and like anthony with his whole gentrifying taking advantage of folks like i just mentioned um and so i think and ex- and again they're like mirrored images but Candyman is the like amplified version of it and you also see this with brie and this is my critique of brie but don't get me wrong i do like her but you know she ain't innocent uh so there's uh so the dinner that Sam mentioned, in that dinner, there's like a museum director and another art curator. And essentially they're both trying to scoop up Brie now that she's out, now that she doesn't have a job anymore because boss is dead. Um, and so Brie meets with the mu- museum director. Um, and I think they are mirror images of each other. Uh, early in the movie, it's established that one of Brie's artists can no longer do uh, an art show because the artist is struggling with addiction. And Brie is stone cold in the face of that. She just said, I told you to put her in rehab months ago. I need her for my exhibition. Uh, and she and you're like, oh, well, maybe she's just like emotionally exhausted or maybe she's just like really worried about the artist. Nah, but she hangs up that call and she's not worried about that artist. She's just worried about her show. Uh, then later in the movie she meets with a museum director who wants to hire her uh and this is their second meeting and the director decides to bring up her father who was an artist that died by suicide and her boyfriend's work who her former co-workers died in front of like no again the emotional intelligence we're not thriving <laughs> I mean, I I really, again, it's just a perfect, I guess, personification of they don't care. It's really all about them. It's about mm-hmm. I'm big and bougie. I need this is a good story because she mentions that a lot. Like your yeah. background. It's so interesting. Like you're you're you know, she's basically saying your trauma, <laughs> your trauma. Love it. You know, she's she's basically those people that read diversity statements. She's those people. for fun. <laughs> yes. Just please tell me your trauma, trauma. porn. I call it trauma, trauma porn. porn. <laughs> it's trauma porn. Yeah. Um, and again, the director is an amplified version of this because obviously not caring about people being dead versus someone struggling to like addiction are in different levels, but they well, are tied. And and I think that I think the director is is like she's almost Bree's future. Yeah. You know? Because she is a bit old, she's a little bit older. And you know, Brie really admires her early on. I don't know how she feels after because we don't really get to see that explored too much. But I mm. think I think, you know, it's it's weird for Brie because this is kind of like her, I guess not idol, but her someone she kind of looks up to in the art yeah. world. Right. And I, I just think it's weird because in a way it's her future, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's kind of suggesting you got to be like me. But but yeah, I, I definitely agree a with a bit that. of a cautionary t- tale in there, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we don't know if the lesson hits on account of we can't skirt back into Candyman. Um, and speaking of, I think finally the mirrored images are William and Sherman. Uh, like the overarching narrative of this movie is the connection between Sherman and Billy, William's childhood nickname. Uh, and like after everything William had been through, I think 
Sherman's death was his breaking point. I'm going to talk about everything William's been through in a minute. Um, but I think after watching uh, like Sherman's like death, he kind of gave up on the world and focused on the legend of Candyman instead. Uh, the two of them are innocent who ultimately become monsters. They both suffer from mental illness uh, because William has been through a lot. Um, and what little we see of Sherman alive, I would argue alludes to some like mental illness with his character. Blah. When Sherman and William interact, uh, Sherman offers him candy um and William understandably screams because a man came out of the wall with a hook hand and is offering him candy so he's frightened Um, he's also he's also a suspect at this time he's also a suspect but like Sherman looks at him he's like why are you scared yeah like like the expression also that actor did a great job yeah Um, like he he, looks at him and he's like almost like a little kid he's like I just thought you I thought you'd be happy Candy makes people happy. (laughs) Literally, literally, like that's the vibe he gives off. And I think, I think what's really impressive about, about the actor is he gives off all that vibe and doesn't say a word, Mm. you know, like you see this in his facial expression and, and it's sad because he is unaware of what's about to happen to him. And he's really unaware of what's going on and that the candy has become an issue. And I, I think, I think it's a really interesting scene because I think the audience is terrified as well mm-hmm. until we see Sherman interacting with, with Billy and realize, Oh, Sherman's harmless. And then you're like, Oh shoot. Sherman's harmless, but the cops are coming. Yeah. Because Billy screams because again, understandably scared, but like, as they like look at each other and as like Sherman's holding out the candy, like you kind of see uh, like William calm. And then he realizes like, Oh, he's like, chill and then he like takes a piece of candy and Sherman smiles at him and like lets him go on his way and you're like to Sam's point you're like oh no Sherman's harmless <laughs> uh, oh it's like a gut punch honestly Sherman's fate I'm not um, I'm not gonna lie to you I think Sherman is potentially the only innocent person in this entire film I think that's fair statement Sherman deserved better yes team Sherman <laughs> which, which um to the movie's credit like we felt that way after like what three minutes with his character yeah, yeah. literally <laughs> Sherman hits um yeah so I would argue that there's some like form of like like mental illness there because again we're living in the walls and like, I don't think he understands I don't think he understands what's going on mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and so he's kind of pushed into the role of like monster because people's assumptions uh well, and, and supernatural think, forces you know and I and I think I, I like that you're bringing up people's assumptions too, because I think it it goes back to quote unquote, like what is normal, right? So when you think about people with mental illnesses or some sort of disability of some kind, I think a lot of times they don't, they don't act the mainstream way, right? That you would expect mm-hmm. someone to act. They don't go by societal norms or whatever. And so there's always that extra fear, like the fear of, of people, right? Because- I, yeah. I think, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll blame. And, you know, obviously in Sherman's case, it's also racially charged, right? Because mm-hmm. he's a black man. So the usual, right? Black, black man, man in Chicago, not yeah, right, thriving. Right. But I think, you know, he's just an easy target for mm-hmm. authorities and for these systems because, because he's a black man, but also because he's a black man with some sort of disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's. Not great. Again, Team Sherman. Team Sherman. Team Sherman. Um, but also, William is pushed into the role of monster 
um I would argue via his like mental illness and his trauma response um and the fact that he thinks bringing Candyman back will be a form of protection to his community which I kind of thought was interesting um I will also point out though I think it's interesting the candy men associated with William only kill white people unlike Tony Todd's Candyman who mainly kills black people and so I wonder if that's due to William's influence or like uh, but it's hard to see who's influencing who in this story or like which yeah and already has like who has control in this relationship is very unclear and as a critique of the film right I think I think that was really left unclear and could have been explored more or explained a bit better I, I think I needed a good 20 to 30 minutes more because I'm confused. It was also shorter than we expected. Yeah, it was shorter than we thought. I definitely think it should have been, you know, two and a half hours, but it wasn't. And I, I don't know. So, so the thing with the thing I'm trying to say is I don't fully understand William's intentions. I I really Mm -hmm. don't. I don't fully grasp them. I really get the scene with Sherman. I get that he kind of feels guilty about it, but then I don't really fully understand his whole idea of, oh, if I keep making, if I make another candy man, then somehow this won't plug my community it, it just wasn't too elaborated well I don't know a bit of a hypothesis about that when we talk about like mental health but the fact that I really have to come up with the story on my own kind of to your point as a critique of the movie like yeah that's what I mean it's it's we're kind of theorizing about it a little too much because I think there's a fine line between oh we're interpreting art and we're interpreting you know facial expressions and such to mm-hmm. oh I need this whole plot point made up because it, there needed to be that plot point and I, I just think it was very absent from the film like the idea of a hive of candy men was super interesting mm-hmm. but we kind of just like expositioned it in a couple sentences and dipped uh where I was like I was like no come back <laughs> like why who? Also, I also think I need the who, what, when, where, and why of this. It also would have been cool if because we only see Sherman's Candyman the whole movie until the very end, where we see Anthony become Candyman, and then we see Tony Todd for like two seconds. Still mad. About they really that. made you think. Like I really thought. I, listen, okay, I could talk about this for days. Maybe I'll make a TikTok about it, but. I just really thought we were going to see more of Tony Todd. And here's my thing. I'm not mad that Sherman was candy mad. That doesn't upset Mm -hmm. me. I like that. But if you're talking about a whole hive of candy men, why am I only seeing one the whole movie? Why don't I see multiple men? I think that would have been cool. You know, I think, and I was looking at this really closely, like the second time I watched, I think like that scene when he's walking around the car, I do think they're like flickering between different candy men. But the fact that I had to study and be like, is that a different actor no. that could be the same actor? Like, you know, like no, I don't it didn't work if <laughs> they did do that. Like no. <laughs> uh because to your point, it makes more sense to like if each time he saw a different person like a different face of candy man like then then you're like really what is going on here? yeah and then it and then it gets elaborated and then you're like oh my gosh that's so interesting and I'm not even saying we have to explore every single I, I think it's good that we start with Sherman's story I think yeah. it definitely I think starting with Sherman's story is strong because it really I mean the original candy man also talks about injustice But Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's really putting you in a context of look at the other injustice, right? Look at the different types of injustice. And like look now and throughout time. It brings a good like, 
it's good it's really good in bringing it into contemporary but also like leaves it open for if someone in the future wants to do this and talk about their own issues you could yeah exactly so I just I don't know those those were a couple things that fell short for me because I think we could have explored it more and you know I I I think this movie is really trying to have a conversation about intergenerational trauma like I think Mm. you know there's definitely a discussion to be had about intergenerational trauma within this film. And it again, it shows us different iterations of Candyman, but not really, right? So it tells us about the different iterations. We see again, Tony Todd transform at the end, right? And, you know, it's different from the original, but I think, you know, what it's really trying to get at is this theme of intergenerational trauma. You mm. know, Candyman in this film represents different black men who have been killed at the hands of white people, many of which are killed by police officers. And, you know, because of this, Candyman is all of these men, right? They are Candymen. And again, I think it kind of personifies like intergenerational trauma in the black community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so to just kind of get into that, so intergenerational trauma also known as transgenerational or multi-generational trauma, is defined as trauma that gets passed down from those who directly experience an incident, so a time in history or some sort of, again, trauma, to subsequent generations. This can be like a whole community or it could also just be something that happens in the family and then it gets passed down. In this case, we're really talking about a community. And this type of trauma has been studied most frequently by looking at Holocaust survivors and how their grandchildren and their children cope and how, you know, how they behave in some studies. And it's also been done looking at indigenous groups in Canada as well. That's what most of the majority of the work on intergenerational trauma comes from. But there's still a lot we don't know about intergenerational trauma, particularly when it comes to a variety of groups in a variety of contexts, which I think there definitely needs to be more exploration about that because Mm -hmm. I think every group has different traumas and different consequences. And so a lot of what I'm about to say is obviously based on the studies that have been published. Um, But obviously, again, it doesn't necessarily apply to every group and there's still a lot left to explore. I think there's a lot of questions and debates within the the psychology community about intergenerational trauma. Right. So as with all kinds of trauma, people have been found to react in different ways. There has Mm -hmm. been some record of at least, you know, four or so adaptive styles when it comes to intergenerational trauma. So first off, you have people who have a hard time moving past the trauma. This affects their lives in a number of ways, really bad health outcomes. They kind of get sort of get stuck in this time and place and can't really Mm -hmm. move forward. And, you know, obviously that can lead to a lot of consequences, especially when you talk about, you know, raising a family and all these kinds of things and the effect that that has on children and subsequently their children, etc. Then you have people who are more numb. So these people tend to be more emotionally detached. You know, they tend to be very separate from the issue. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. that can lead to detachment in other ways and in other places in life. And you have people who are fighting back. So you have people who are you know, kind of fire charged with anger. It's more about fighting. There's a constant fight response. However, some of these people do end up, you know, being activists in the community, et cetera, but it does take an emotional toll um, to be, to be so active all the time. And, you know, then there are the people who kind of seem to move past the trauma as much as possible, go on to live like relatively okay lives. Right. Um, Which is like the ideal scenario, of course. Right. That's um, interesting. Not to like interrupt you. No, you're that's fine. interesting because it reminds me of like 
I think it's like the four like F's of the trauma response, like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Mm-hmm. I don't think fawn is in here, but like people who have the hard past like, timing, people who like can't really move on kind of reminds me like freeze. Mm-hmm. People are numb being like flight and like becoming an activist is kind of like your form of fighting. So it's interesting. Yeah. No, yeah. So there's there's a lot of interesting literature on this. I will say one thing I find sad is there's not a lot of exploration of this with like POC communities. Of course not. <laughs> Which I'm I mean, you know, obviously, obviously, again, there is some work done with indigenous groups and like Holocaust survivors, etc. But you know, I just I couldn't find a lot on other on other like people of color. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I think it's definitely something people should explore more and me maybe should be funded I don't know but it was just it was just a thought it would help if it could get funded because I don't know I just I find it interesting because I think when you think about all the groups that have been traumatized due to Mm -hmm. colonialism and white supremacy and all those kinds of things there's a lot of different responses I think different groups have had and it would just be interesting to explore because I think we get a better understanding of a lot of things or also just looking at like race in the conversation in general. I saw this one talk that talked about how like white people responded to 9-11 with white supremacy and like that had like a big resurgence after 9-11 and I'm like you know what bet and especially uh this like video I was watching talked about like you see that a lot in country music. Um, interesting but see yeah exactly it would that would be interesting to look at too. The, I don't know so I, I mean you get it it's like it's yeah. like you get my point. You get my point. My point is, I just think we're one day academia will value race. Yeah, because I hadn't really thought about the white supremacist thing. But now that you mentioned it, that's interesting, too. Like, just that's I don't know. Just I think it would help us understand every everything and everything better. But whatever, I'll move on. Um. <laughs> And, and, you know, again, it's important to note that there's a lot of other things that go into intergenerational trauma. I'm really just summarizing here. There could be a whole other podcast on that. Um, there's lots of articles on it, though. But, you know, it's there's more to this than just remembering events in a community or just the catastrophic, catastrophic event in a community. Um, this has an effect on how people raise their children, behave in general, mm-hmm. behave as a family unit, how people see community, etc. And so that's why it has such a large impact on, you know, g- major generations and such and why this goes on so long because people continue to raise their children with that same kind of either mindset or mentality, etc. Yeah. So kind of like the example you gave, right? When thinking about 9/11, and then the white supremacy response, well, obviously you're going to pass that to your kids. And then now you have people that weren't even there kind of having similar reactions and similar sentiments. Uh, there are people who like were not alive during 9-11 who are currently in college. And that was such a mind. I was very mind blown by that. But to your point, I think that's why it's important to think of intergenerational trauma, like in a community context um because like on a smaller scale at like a family level it like definitely happens too but I think when you look at like the broader community especially with uh BIPOC and like people of color like you see a lot more like there's so much more at play there and to your point of kind of like focusing on like specific communities I just want to take a moment to talk about like black mental health and how you see this in the black community because this movie talks uh depicts a lot of different like mental illnesses uh and 
it's a lot um if we're being honest uh and this is an idea unique to the new film as like most of the franchise focuses on white women so I do like that like we're using the story to like bring in black mental health and hopefully spark conversations about it uh which I love because it's an incredibly important issue at least in the U.S. probably beyond that uh we're in the middle of like a black mental health crisis. Uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death for like black young adults from like 18 to 24. Um, and, uh, and the numbers when you look at like black teenagers are like particularly startling. Um, and I think the movie engages with black mental health through pretty much all of our main characters. We have Anthony's descent into madness. Uh, we discover William's like mental health issues uh, at the end and throughout the movie, uh, we're kind of working through some of Bree's trauma with her nightmares about her father um, and how both her father and Anthony's uh, mental illnesses impact her own well-being. Uh, and that's obviously true to real life as mental illness doesn't only impact the people who have the illness, but like their family and but their families and loved ones, which can create trauma for them, however unintentional that is. Um, because as a child, Bree sees her father dying via suicide, and the weight of that is with her throughout the film. Uh, and we know that Black young women are more likely to attempt suicide, uh, 60% more so than their white counterparts, even without this additional trauma. Uh, and like suicide bereaved family members experience a lot more psychological distress than the average person, um, such as anxiety, nightmares, depression, suicidal ideation, panic attacks, and like PTSD, just to name a few. Uh, the film engages with the somewhat because we see um, anxiety night and nightmares within Brie. Um, uh, but that's often the case in horror. The final girl leaves with more trauma. Uh, Brie just watched, at the, by the end of the movie, Brie's watched her boyfriend get murdered. She's killed someone and watch a bunch of cops get murdered as well. But I think another important thing to, uh, to talk about uh, another person to talk about would be William uh, who has suffered so much trauma it is impressive he's still standing at the start of this movie honestly uh one note I'm assuming that this film is if not a sequel to the original Candyman so keep that in mind as I'm talking about William's past uh, because William is uh, it's hinted that William is Billy from the first movie um and by the start of this movie, Billy is grown up in Cabrini Green, surrounded by gang violence. He's seen a woman, Helen, get beaten within an inch of her life, and at great personal risk, called the police to help her. Uh, he watched that same woman who he befriended burn to death after saving a baby. Uh, and after calling for help from a man who briefly frightened him, uh, Sherman, he then watched that man get beaten to death by police. Uh, after he realized that Sherman was just being nice. Uh, so we can assume that there's probably some sense of responsibility in that as well. All of which to say, William has been through it. Um, and I think William's response to all the horrible things he's experienced uh, might fall under the fawn category of like the four Fs of trauma that I mentioned earlier, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Uh, Fawn is described as trying to avoid conflict via appeasing behaviors. Um, I imagine as a child who witnessed 
and again might feel responsible for Sherman's death as well as having seen Sherman kill his sister because I forgot that extra into trauma there too uh he might have used such like appeasing behaviors to be shown mercy uh we as the but again we as the audience don't know who's in control with this connection between like the candy men and Sher- and William uh we really only know that they're working together and then again we have Anthony's descent into uh, madness you could also argue that there might be some issues with him before that we see him at the art show get super drunk we see um him engaging in like some self-harming behaviors with his skin um but that's probably more so attributed to Candyman of it all um but yeah ultimately I think this movie engages a lot with like mental health and illnesses um and brings trauma. to light a lot of trauma in the black community yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know what I really liked about this film is I think it was way more focused on like, I guess on black issues than the first film, like the original, yes. I guess. To yeah. be clear, it seems as though we ripped this movie apart. We did enjoy most of this yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To be, to be fair, we, we did enjoy this movie. I think there's a lot of just great, I mean, just great artistry in this film, but also a lot of stuff to think about in terms of our I guess, social commentary and our world we live in. Um, And again, kind of like we just, you know, illustrated here, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of trauma and mental health issues. So it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's worth watching. So watch it if you haven't. Yeah. Yes. But that's our episode, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, We look forward to seeing Don't forget to follow us. Don't forget to follow us on social media at First Girls To Go on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Yes, all lowercase. Uh, Again, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Bye.